What's up, everyone? Season two, episode six of Stats Don't Matter. Sam Jesus taking the wheel again, bringing you March Madness recap, talking a little more NFL news, drama, and some more draft positioning. In my cup this week, it's an Imperial Mexican hot chocolate stout from Virginia Beach, Virginia. And of course, you know you can find Stats Don't Matter on Stitcher, Apple, Google, and Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Look, we say this all the time, but you're really missing out on a lot of good social media content. You got to follow us on our Twitter handle at Stats Podcast. And make sure you do the same thing on our Instagram handle at Stats Don't Matter. Except for all of you people who have been sending me a lot of weird, possibly adult message requests and wanted me to join a group. Like, y'all got to quit that. We got to move on. Yeah, that's not going to happen. So go follow us on our social media. Like, share, rate the podcast. We want to hear feedback from you. And as Tim would say, sad because he's not here. Let's go. My body's ready. You know, if you've been in craft beer long enough, that there is just, there's there's just name brand recognition, right? You have breweries that you follow. Um, and if you're really a big super fan of them, what you do is you end up finding the the staff like you end up following the staff whether it's on social media you you read about them in the news or whatever and you end up knowing more and more about the brewery than you did before it makes you feel connected to the brewery you obviously want to continue to buy their products uh, but it's also a really good way to know when a brewer moves and goes somewhere else now that's not to say brewers are transient right Um, there is something to be said about having a product that you put your name on and when it's time to move on, it's time to move on, right? It's no different as a professional career than sometimes you've just reached the limit, uh, the glass ceiling, if you will, uh, or maybe a, an actual permanent ceiling. And you just decide, this isn't what I want to do anymore. I would like to go be my own brewer. I want to be a head brewer somewhere else. I want to go work research and development. I want to go work for you know the macro beer companies like Budweiser or whatever it is. So there's a, there's a lot of movement in craft beer. Uh, a really bad pun is that it, it's a fluid situation. It, it really is. Uh, brewers do come and go, but it's a very tight-knit community in as much that you probably know um, when a brewer goes somewhere else and starts something, you usually gravitate towards them if you're a very big fan. Uh, and, and I think that's important because that's how we get this beer today. And that beer is the Wooded Reserve, the Barrel Age Series from a brewery called New Realm Brewing Company, headquartered out of, um, I, th- I think it's Virginia Beach. Um, Real important thing right there. The, the person who co-founded New Realm, Mitch Steele. Now, if you're a craft beer aficionado, you recognize that name off the top. He was one of the industry titans uh, in the original co-founders of Stone Brewing out of Escondido, California. Uh, literally wrote the book on IPAs as we know it. Uh, and we wouldn't have necessarily uh, the hazy revolution that we did. Um, I, I loved everything that Mitch did at Stone. And I, I know that Stone was a big... Uh, you know, craft brewery, sort of not necessarily in the likes of um, Sam Adams, not necessarily want to say that, but like when you think of like big craft brewers in America, it's like Stone, New Belgium. It's, it's very difficult for you to get away from those because they're one, they've been industry at Sierra Nevada, right? Those three have been in the industry for a long time and they've, they've really set the standard for what American craft beer is. And I think it would just be a disservice not to try something from a guy who went on and, you know, started his own new brewery uh, somewhere else, wanted to do something different, wanted to walk away from stone, you know, which is kind of crazy, you know, all things considered. But anyways, ended up, you know, I live in Virginia, I ended up finding a lot of this new realm stuff. Uh, Some of it was getting up to us, you know, via the local distribution, but Virginia Beach as the crow flies is actually like three and a half, four hours away. From where I live, it's it's not close. It's not like one of those, oh, hey, let's, you know, what are we doing on Saturday? Let's hit a brewery. Like, yeah, you could do that. But if you want to go to Virginia Beach, I mean, you're spending a minimum of like six to eight hours in the car there and back. So it's not a day trip. That That's for sure. Um, and I know that <laughs> because it can be done. Uh, my wife and I went to Virginia Beach uh, last summer, um, probably right around the time where things were beginning to open up just a little bit, um, you know, at the beaches and everything. We wanted to go to a beach, so we said we had never been to Virginia Beach. So let's let's take a drive. So we masked up and and we took the drive down there. Um, and as luck would have it, as we're heading to the the beach boardwalk, we just happened to drive by New Realms Brewing Campus uh, in Virginia Beach. It's a very very beautiful out you know outdoor indoor facility. Um, everything was socially distanced. 
Uh, there were fire pits. There was actually live music before live music kind of you know got shut down uh, for a little bit there in between with the middle of the pandemic. So it, it was it was kind of a surreal thing, you know what I mean? And I think one back one day we'll look back on 2020 and realize like wow, there was some there's some really wild shit that happened, right? But um, went to the beach, you know, wore masks on the beach and stayed distant from people, and it was kind of cold and, and windy that day. I remember that, but um, you know, we stopped by New Realm on the way back, and of course. If you know anything about Stone IPAs, like they are very, very hoppy. Uh, Ruination is probably one of the best double IPAs you could find if you're getting into craft beer. It's just, it's, it's just a West Coast IPA that's just so good, um, and it's the same every time you get it. Uh, one of my personal favorites from Stone is Fear Movie Lions. It's a double IPA, um, delicious IPA is very good from them as well, right? And then um, I think Tropic Thunder, which is like their dry hop lager, like all very good beers. Go find them. But anyways, he, he starts. This new realm thing, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I know who Mitch Steele is. Um, I haven't read his book, but I followed him a lot on social media. I followed the brewery, so I definitely got to check this out. So the wife and I stopped in, had a few beers. I think it was the ambiance necessarily of like how everyone was sitting socially distant. We're outside, uh, like again, it was a little cold and windy, so like people weren't exactly allowed to huddle together, right? Because you know social distancing. So it was a really unique experience, and in that unique experience. I'm trying to rate the beers, you know, based off of what I knew from Stone. Uh, and and I, I couldn't do that, right? Um, I had a, a couple and, and you, you, you sort of figure out pretty quickly through tasters that like the beer, the bill is completely different. The grains, uh, the hops might be the same, but the way that they're brewing and they're, they're coming out with something different, um, it, it was good. That being said, the beer does get, you know, put into cans and it does have some natural distribution that they're working towards. So... I like supporting it when I can find it. Tim, you, you told me to go local, so I did. I found this bottle as part of a series, right, of their barrel-aged series. And I mean, I'm normally a sucker for barrel-aged stuff anyways. I like to sit it in the uh, in the cabinet, let it kind of hang out. I'll get to it eventually. But I noticed when I picked up the first one that this was the um, their barrel series. It was, you know, 2020, 2021, volume one of five. So my interest has already peaked. So I grabbed the number one that I saw, which is what I'm going to uh, preview today. It's it's the um, Osaka Chaka, which is an Imperial Mexican chocolate stout. It's been aged in Barbados rum barrels for six months. 10.8% alcohol by volume. Looking forward to it. Got to say, I was never really a huge fan of Stone's like big stouts. They, they did one every year called the Farking Woot Stout. Um, and it was a collaboration, uh, you know, beer with some other brewers. And it always had a lot of hype, much like um, the, the Lagunitas Willetai Stout does. But I didn't really kind of get into stouts. And, and, of course, now that my palate's been refined, or maybe because I'm fucking old, uh, getting into this sort of thing. So I, I think one thing you got to talk about right from the top is that they've got these two skeletons sitting around a fire with a barrel. And they're definitely brewing up some beer. And, you know, it's kind of spooky. I, I, I definitely like it. There's a lot of beers that try to be Osaka um, and Mexican hot chocolate. You've probably heard of them from other big reputable brewers like Perennial. I think they do one. Um, I'm not I'm not a drinker of Mexican hot chocolate, so I don't know how this is necessarily going to work, but let's go ahead and try it out. And even though Tim's not here, one sip, everyone knows the rules. But I'm going to keep talking because Sam Jesus take the wheel episode. From the top. Very thick and in, in, uh, in viscous, fluffy brown head. Uh, the liquid moves pretty well. The one thing you're going to you smell the minute you get this is the rum. Um, I, I couldn't really tell you the difference between Barbados rum and, say, Bahamian rum or um, or American rum. You know what I mean? My my palate for that and, and the hard alcohol is very, very limited. But I, I do think you can you can definitely smell uh, the rum. And of course, maybe only sitting in barrels for six months, it picked up a lot more of that and it's still a little vicious. Um, you know, we'll see what happens. Here we go. One sip. Everyone knows the rules. Getting a lot of spices on the nose now. Okay. Rum bite. Chocolate notes. Definitely. Very thin. Uh, I kind of expected for something that was barrel aged. You know, usually it, it takes a little more of a syrupy or, or sugary sort of uh, taste, but this 
This is thin for 10.8%. I would expect it to be a little bit thicker. Uh, you know, 40 IBUs. Usually in, in chocolatey you know, beers, you're going to get a higher IBU. I'm getting more like raisin notes off the nose than, than, I, than I think I might like. And now that I mentioned that, uh, that thick head, it's, it's definitely come down a little bit. But, well, I mean, fuck it. Everyone knows the rules, I guess. We'll take a second tip and see what happens. Good news as you as you pour from the rest of the bottle. It's a light brown bottle. I can look. I can see there's no particles that are uh, sitting at the bottom. So it hasn't been on the shelf forever where it's begun to um, send that hot particles or, or you know, keep re-fermenting and put it down towards the bottom. I'll be honest. I don't really have a frame of reference for this. So I'm going to give this a 3.7 um, out of 5. I, I think as far as what I know with Imperial uh, Ales, especially, you know, Stouts, it, it definitely... Well, this is not a stout. Yeah, it is. Um, maybe I'm just used and conditioned to extra sugar, and I don't get it here. I, I get much more of the rum, um, but it is it is very thin. So for me, that's kind of a drawback. I, I think if I'm going to get, excuse me, an imperial beer, whether it's an imperial IPA or an imperial stout, I kind of want the body to be full, um, and I, and I definitely want more of that flavor profile. And this is this is kind of muted a little bit, so I'm not really sure what happened there, but. It's it's a good beer. I, again, New Realm makes um, sours and IPAs. If you live in the Virginia area, you can probably find them at your local grocery store. Uh, if you live in the Virginia Beach area, they're probably sold all kinds of places. So, uh, you know, definitely go check them out. Now we're gonna recap March Madness. I know Tim, you didn't really you know watch a lot of March Madness. I while I never really was successful in playing uh, basketball at either the high school or the college level, didn't, didn't possess nearly the amount of talent. I love watching uh, the games. <clears throat> Wife and I definitely watch a lot of UConn women's basketball. Um, and when the University of Washington made a run to the dance a couple of years ago, I, I was definitely supporting and watching that. Um, as I mentioned on this podcast already, University of Southern Maine, we had a women's basketball team that was fantastic. Uh, so, you know, supported them back in the day. Accurate days. That's a little drink subliminal for the kids out there. Uh, but we didn't get the dance last year. Coronavirus, shit can the whole thing. Um, Sabrina Ionescu from Oregon, they, they were one of the favorites. Then they didn't get a chance to play the tournament at all. She went number one overall in WNBA. She's doing great things. Um, but we missed college basketball last year. And this year they said, well, we're going to go and bubble up. We're going to put them in two cities. Uh, and then the Final Fours. Uh, we'll all bring to Indianapolis and, and then everyone will be in that bubble. So we, we talked a little bit about getting, you know, Sweet 16 and Elite Eight, but we, we got to talk about the Final Four just a little bit here. Women's basketball up first. UConn, Arizona, Baylor, Stanford. There's a lot of West Coast teams there. And, and as a guy pounding the table for, for the West Coast, there was a lot of Pac-12 teams that were in the dance of both the men's and a woman because I didn't talk earlier about Oregon and Oregon State, but they both went. Uh, that was a that was a matchup I think we really wanted to see but didn't quite get there. Um, but in the Final Four, UConn, perennial powerhouse women's basketball, um, and Arizona just sort of blew the doors off them. Um, it, it was kind of shocking to see. You know, you're watching the game. Arizona ended up winning that game 69-59, and a 10-point loss to any team that's coached by Gino Ariema is – is something you pay attention to, especially when the AP player of the year, Paige Beckers, was limited most of the time. And Ari McDonald was just flying on the court. There's, there's no other real way to, to state it. Um, one thing I think you can say about the Final Four and the Natty uh, championship games that we saw for men's and women's basketball, there's going to be a recurring theme here. And it's getting punched in the fucking face. And Mike Tyson had that, that quote and he said it best. You know, everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face. And a lot of, you know, college basketball is how you deal with the seeding is how you you go through and how maybe people don't think your team is worth the salt. So they pick you to lose in the elite eight to a perennial team. Uh, and and that's, that's bulletin board material for a lot of teams, to be honest. And I think that was what happened in the final four between uh, Arizona and UConn. 
from the get-go, Arizona, aggressive, shoot the threes. Ari McDonald could not be stopped. And I think, uh, you know, as Rebecca Lobos was saying during the, uh, during the game cast, I think what UConn might have tried to do, and I agree with her assessment on this, is that they, they probably thought, okay, they have Ari McDonald, we have Paige Beckers, th- they'll cancel out. But that wasn't really the case. Um, Arizona was very smart and very adept in moving McDonald around, keeping pressure uh, on the wings, and then just finding ways to build a lead. And I think once you build a lead, this, the psychology of the sport comes in behind it, and you're like, okay, we're only down two. That's, that's one possession. We're only down four. That's a possession and a foul, maybe an and one uh, if we're in the three. Oh, we're down six. Okay, well, it's a two-possession game. Oh, we're down nine. And then before you know it, the, the lead can swell. It can come back. It can swell again. But there's like a sweet spot. And I think for a lot of these teams uh, that end up in the natty, especially the two of the winners, if you keep that, that distance at about 10 points and you play smart basketball and you continue to tick the pace up, you find yourself in a situation where you're hard to catch up to. That's exactly what happened here. Um, UConn just wasn't able to get on their flow whatsoever. And that was that was crazy. That was crazy to see. A team that has gone to 13 consecutive Final Fours, it gets bounced. Now, the team is young. Again, they didn't have a season last year. Maybe there's some things they're trying to figure out. I think it is more along the lines of, hey, you know, Fuck around and find out. You, you, you pick the you pick the wrong team on the wrong day, uh, and and that's kind of what happened there. So when you take a look at what Stanford did to South Carolina to get into the Natty, they survived a nail biter, sixty six sixty five. Strong defense, and you're sort of thinking, all right, uh, Stanford is one of those teams that's been, again, maybe not a perennial contender, but always talked about, always in in the, the conversation. Head coach Tara Vanderveer been around for a minute and is a very, very, very good coach. Um, so you're thinking, okay, we're, we're going to see something here, right? There's, there's got to be a game where one beats up on the other or something like that, but that was not the case. Um, and you, you're thinking, oh my God, like it looks like Stanford just survived South Carolina. When you see a team like Arizona, they blow the doors off UConn, you're thinking the Natty is. Uh, Stanford, Arizona, Pac-12, what up? And then you're thinking, oh, Arizona's got this in the bag. Because they beat UConn. UConn's supposed to be the better team, right? And that is just not what happened. Uh, Stanford, they love to provide basketball that keeps your nails getting chewed. They won the natty 54-53. to One of the first things, if you watch any of the highlights from this game, you'll see Stanford had size and speed. Whereas Arizona had speed and, and they were they were tenacious, right? That that could work when you're when you're trying to eviscerate man versus zone. But what Stanford had in size limited Arizona um, and just kind of kept them at bay just a little bit. There's missed free throws. That's one thing I saw in all these games, and I think it's just gonna happen. Um, you know, you'll make eleven in a row, and then you'll miss like the next like four or five. Um, and you'll make one, miss one, and every one of those points matters towards the end. And what happened here in the end was that R. McDonald got the ball. There was a desperation heave at the buzzer, but she was triple covered. Now, all the people on the interwebs are all like, hey, I looked at this still photo of three Arizona players that were uncovered. Yeah, they were uncovered for a reason, right? Because Stanford said, we know where the ball is going. We know who uh, the coach is going to give it to at the end of the game, and we need to take her out. So we need to go ahead and make sure that we have enough people to keep her out of shooting distance to make sure that she can't get the ball uh, close enough to get a foul, go to the line, or heaven forbid, go up 55-54, and you've got two to three seconds left to play. Um, It was a very, very decisive game, uh, even though the score doesn't belay that, because there were some some tearjerker potential missed free throws uh, by Stanford before that. Hats off to them, though. The Stanford Cardinals' first uh, NCAA women's basketball title in 31 years. Hats off to Coach Vanderveer. Um, I, I liked in this game how there was so much defense. But not only was there defense, there was also offense that came out. It was a good pace. So when I say that there was um, no wasted possessions, you could really tell by the players. The women were out there hitting the boards hard. You know, th- there might be a breakaway, and there might be an A point scored, or there might be a foul given, but only one foul shot you know, went in. 
instead of two. Or you had a good look and you you chucked up the three, but you didn't get your own rebound, and they, they took it back the other way and made you pay. Every one of those points that was scored in the, in the national championship for the women's basketball teams had, had a purpose, I, I think. And I, that just made the drama kind of go up only from there because you got Baylor, and we talked about how they complained about how they, they lost on the, you know, the Elite Eight. You have UConn, who clearly wants to not be known as a team that makes it and breaks. You have Stanford, who just, again, won their first title in 31 years. And you have Arizona, who most people didn't think were actually going to do much of anything. Uh, and shout out to the Arizona head coach. She was on the UW team uh, a few years back. She went down. She got a job at Arizona. Ari McDonald went with her, right? She, she transferred. Um, and that, that says a lot about a coach. If you can if you can take talent from a team where you are in a supporting role and you become the head role somewhere else and that person says, yep, I'm going to follow you. That's the kind of coach that you want. Um, they really, really shocked a lot of people. And I, I think that they can be back uh, next year. I, I, I definitely think that, again, you got those teams, especially in the Pac-12 now, it's going to be a lot more competitive. Um, but I think Arizona certainly can, can get back. But hats off to the Sanford Cardinals. Now let's go over to the men's natty. It was between Gonzaga and Baylor. Everyone wants to talk about Gonzaga, UCLA, the overtime. It was 75-75, ended up being 90-93 off of Suggs, buzzer beater, heave, desperation, walk-off, three-point, whatever you want to call it. Um, and Baylor made short work of Houston. And when I mean short work, I mean like really short work. Like they mauled them. So again, you're thinking, well, these two number one seeds, like they were AP ranked one and two all year. We were supposed to see them in the regular season, but we didn't. There was a uh, you know a COVID outbreak with Gonzaga, so they weren't able to play that game. It it happens, right? I think what we all thought this was Zags' year, right? This is a team that has always always made it far, and there's been comments about their schedule um, and what it takes to get there. But I think that is a moot point when you take a look at the talent they've had to go through. Um, and of course, a few years ago, they did lose the national championship as well. So this team knows how to rebound even after heartbreak. What we saw last night, I'm recording this Tuesday, uh, you know, Monday night was the men's natty. What we saw was something totally different. And again, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Gonzaga with Timmy and Suggs, they were just sort of running gun. They were just finding ways in the zone. And you think to yourself, this team's undefeated. This team's undefeated. They're going to go all the way. Unpopular opinion here. You got to lose a game. I, I don't. I don't think coaches actively try to lose games. I just think that the psyche in undefeated teams they get to a point where they believe they're impervious to small cuts or getting knocked down. And if you want to talk about what happened in the men's natty with Gonzaga, they got knocked down. The Baylor Bears, a rebuild of a program, they've been mired in scandal from the first time head coach Drew actually got on the court uh, with them. They said, we destroyed Houston and we are coming for you. And I feel like Gonzaga probably just thought they're going to stick to the game plan. And when they come out flat, one for nine from three, they pretty much abandoned the three, like a good 10, 11 minutes into the game. They were in early foul trouble. They just could not provide an answer for Baylor's speed or the fact that Baylor, and this is this is a crazy, I would say, stat that doesn't matter, but it absolutely does. Crazy offensive rebound percentage, 48-1% offensive rebound. Every time a Baylor Bear threw up that ball, if it hit the glass and came off, there was one to two, three people streaming to the ball, getting second and third looks. Um, there were so many uncharacteristic turnovers from Gonzaga that I think they believed, even though they were down big early, they went into halftime only down 10. They're thinking, okay, we've been here before. We've come back from nine. This will be fine. And when they came back at a half, it wasn't, it wasn't to be. Um, I, I thought Gonzaga, right? You know, I, I definitely I stand for them on the on the podcast. I was like, oh yeah, you know, they can win the natty, but they ran into a buzzsaw. Um, and, and quite frankly, you know, Baylor's plan from the beginning was this is the last game of the season. Let's throw a chance out the window. We played before they did on Saturday night, and we think we have fresher legs. We think we have a game plan we can stick to, which is run the shit off the boards 
and see if they can handle it, see if they can keep up. And the short answer was they couldn't. Um, add in that Gonzaga was turning over balls worse than rookie quarterbacks. I mean, th- there was a point early on in the game where I think Baylor was like, okay, yeah, they're Bulldogs, but we're Bears. You know, I don't want to equate it to animals, but they were just like, at no point are they going to get closer than 10 points to us. So what we need to do is we need to increase the pace. We need to increase the pace. We need to increase the pace just a little bit more. We need to go ahead and take those well-timed looks. And they were just shredding Gonzaga. It doesn't matter what what look they were giving man or zone. They just made short work of them. And they had three guards that were just unbelievable from three. And it's sort of something I guess you could say you see coming because we talked earlier about the you know Golden State Warriors and the Splash Brothers and how the three has revolutionized the game. It was only going to be so long before that element trickled down. There's a a good three-point shooter on, on most teams. There's probably a good three-point shooter and a good backup. Um, Baylor had three. And every one of those men on the court just found a way to continue to sink threes. And it was like every time a three went in when – you know, Gonzaga had to play. I would, I wouldn't, I don't want to say timid, but you have a lot of your number one and number two players on that squad that are in foul trouble before halftime. Not the way you want to go through the game because then Baylor just says, well, we're just going to keep increasing the pace. And if you can't keep up with us, we're going to make sure you never get closer to that. Um, I think, honestly, in a perfect world, Gonzaga, if they played this game 100 times, Gonzaga would have needed to control the pace 90 of those times to really have an effective chance to win the game. I think what happened is that Baylor went in a half knowing that they had a killer drive that Gonzaga couldn't match. They were feebly switching from man to zone, little results, and it was like Baylor was like, okay, throw throw whatever you wanted us. Like, we're, we're a brick wall. We're just going to keep coming. Uh, and by the way, we're going to keep, you know, gutting you. We're going to keep sinking those threes that are a little bit further back from the arc, a little bit further back. Oh, yeah, we have a couple guys that you know are in foul trouble, but okay, we'll bring in Vital. He's a good role player for us. And what happened? You know, those players, winners want the ball, right? And it really got to a point where I, I think probably almost halfway through the second half, I was like, I was still publicly telling my friends that I was like group chatting with, like, oh yeah, yeah, Gonzaga could come back, but even I knew that like that wasn't going to happen, uh, and and that was tough. Gonzaga is a team that has a lot of talent. Baylor is a team that is talented. They play together. They have an unbelievable amount of talent. They're going to have at least three to four players who are probably going to go to the NBA this year. Um, but that's 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 what you deal with every single year, right? You can say that Gonzaga had a cupcake schedule to get into the dance. Well, they got into the dance, and they beat, they've beaten a lot of great teams along the way. They have more experience in the dance than a lot of other teams do. So if I wanted to take down a Titan, I would go for their, their, their legs, their kneecaps, their ankles. Like I would do whatever I could to prove that they bleed. And once the rest of the team knows that they're looking at a Titan who can be taken down, you're, the, the playbook's open at that point. And when you have a team who gets to the end of the season and says, this is the last game. We lost a game this season. They're undefeated. The pressure is on them. They have to beat us. And we could have beaten them early in the season. We could have come up with an even better game plan. COVID derailed that. Nah, let's go ahead and throw the kitchen sink at them. Shout out to the Baylor Bears. What an amazing performance for their first ever national championship. We're going to get into some NFL news now, and I'm going to keep sipping on this Imperial Stout here. There's like no head now, so I don't know if there's like, I don't know what's going on here. Still a lot of rum, though. A lot of rum. Like the dregs or the legs, I guess you would call it, right, in wine, when you sort of push the beer up and you should see it like kind of sticking to the glass or lacing. It's not really happening. There's definitely still carbonation in the beer itself. Uh, I wonder if this was like, hey, you you bought it. You, you shouldn't keep it in the in the cabinet and store it for a little bit. You should drink it now. I mean, still, still got some flavor in it. So it's not bad, I suppose. All right. The quarterback bonanza that's going to happen this year 
uh, is fantastic. There was a lot of drama and talk about Russell Wilson going somewhere. Deshaun Watson wasn't happy in in, uh, in Houston. Obviously, Tom Brady moved last offseason. Phillip Rivers retired. Carson Wentz is now a Colt. A lot of quarterback news. Here's what happened. The New York Jets traded Sam Darnold to the Carolina Panthers. They gave up a sixth rounder this year and a second and fourth rounder in 2022. So for the number three overall pick, he got his new team, three picks in return. To be honest, Carolina got a steal. The Jets giving a sixth rounder up this year is inconsequential. A second and a fourth next year is going to be big. The draft this year, and as of last year, was difficult in the fact that we didn't have much of a season and the combine was different and the combine will be a little bit different this year, even though there's going to be, uh, well, sorry, the draft is going to be different this year, even though we we'll have fans there, but the combine, I don't think necessarily is going to, like we're still kind of getting out of the COVID protocol. It's not going to be the same. We're going to be a couple years out. I like teams to be a little more aggressive. What I think is going to happen here that's not going to help the Jets is that that second rounder next year, is really going to translate to a quality player that would have been a cornerstone for their franchise because there are going to be a lot of big names from this season who maybe would have been second-round talents that just because of the shortened season or the fact that everyone really wants to get back to full sports will trade higher, right? Um, Second-rounder. I mean, those are people that you anticipate to stay with your team for a long time. This does make Teddy Bridgewater's situation in Carolina murky. What are they going to do? Are they going to move him? They're going to restructure his contract. Like Sam Donald's not being the backup. That's not happening. Um, and I know what you're saying. Sam Donald was absolutely terrible. He saw ghosts against the New England Patriots. Sam Donald also had Adam Gase as his coach. Adam Gase has a tenant for like working with great quarterbacks and kind of making them even better. Like a little, I guess you could say a little bit with like Peyton Manning and you know, he got something out of Jay Cutler, but. Donald should have had the support from the get-go. Outside of Frank Gore and Robbie Anderson, who did he have on offense? The defense, they were moving pieces left and right. Um, you got a lot of coaches in there. Like it, it just wasn't a very good environment for that, for that young quarterback. And remember, Baker Mayfield struggled too. And they were they're from the same draft. Baker's now turned it around because you have a consistent voice in coaching and and I think you have the drive and desire to be there. I think Donald probably would have been okay another year. In New York, they they traded. They got some good pieces this offseason. They had the draft capital thanks to Seattle and their two, two first-round picks for Jamal Adams. But I, I think this is good. He's going to Carolina. The offense coordinator there, Joe Brady, helped revitalize Joe Burrow. A lot of people have talked about it. It's not necessarily Joe Brady as the offense coordinator that I'm paying attention to. It's Matt Rule who went down and took that, that team over after Ron Rivera, who arguably brought that team you know, to the forefront of a lot of people's consciousness with Cam and, and the 15-1 team and MVP and going to the Super Bowl. And he turned heads last year. He, he really did. Um, and there's a lot of pieces in Carolina now that are very, very good. Very good. Uh, and, of course, you still have Christian McCaffrey there. So having a quarterback who's been around for, for a bit it is good. I don't know necessarily that Bridgewater was going to be the lock. I, th- I think Carolina probably could have found a way to trade up, maybe get a quarterback. Um, but what I love about the Panthers is that they have a offense coordinator and a head coach that want to go full send. Hey, let's do it. Oh, you don't want Sam? Cool, I'll take Sam, and I will make sure that Sam gets a chance to prove all his doubters wrong. You know, Sam Darnold had some flashes in the pain where he was really, really good, and he made a lot of rookie mistakes, which is what happens. One thing I think that we we get caught up in and when we talk about, you know, draft positioning, there's all this talk. Well, if you take a quarterback in the top five picks, like that's got to be a starter, right? Um, I mean, Atlanta and San Francisco both tweeted out articles this week off their social media pages like, oh, who should we take with the number three and number four overall picks? Like, you know, here are our QB comparisons. Like, they're not even hiding it anymore. Like, they're going to trade, you know, picks to get a ransom for someone to go up and get one of those quarterbacks or they're going to take Justin Fields. Uh, Trevor Lawrence, if he manages to fall, which I don't think he would, um, Trey Lance and Zach Wilson. A very, very congested quarterback class. It's very tough when you have these college quarterbacks. If they've been there for three years, then fantastic. You have enough tape and film to watch them on. 
Um, but there's always drawbacks and, and I'm not, I'm not going to fall for the tropes. Okay. Uh, I said on the last pod, like, Oh yeah, well, like Ohio state quarterbacks, like, you know, what happened to, you know, JT Barrett. It's very difficult to go from a college scheme in which things are built for you necessarily. Right. It's no surprise that at Alabama, for example, like the team is constructed mostly of incredible guys in the trenches on the offensive and defensive line rangy wide receivers that have twitchy speed and running backs. By default, Alabama quarterbacks are not given a fair shake because they're unfairly told, well, you have all the talent in the world. Anyone could could make that throw. Well, that's not really true. However, the data shows us with some of these quarterbacks when they get into the league that they're not able to find success at the next level. That's many things. That's not, you went to Alabama so you can't be a quarterback at the professional level. That's, you are a quarterback where the scheme was designed to give you easier reads or easier looks. You made great throws when it was required. In the NFL, it's the iron sharpening the other iron. You have to make great throws every time you get a chance. You have to make people pay. You only have 30 or 40 plays a game, and you want some of those back because of you know throwing the ball errant or high or something like that. We set college QBs up for failure. And when I say we, I mean like as a media, like consciousness. And, and I'm not part of that, but I'm just saying like our expectations as fans, we, we get to the point where we're just saying like, God, why can't they just succeed at the next level? They don't have one of the greatest offensive minds at the next level. They have a coach who might be on a second or a third team or a coach who was a coordinator and he finally got a shot to be a head coach. And there's growing pains with that. If you're a position coach or a defensive quality assistant coach or an offensive quality assistant coach and you become a coordinator, your life gets more complex. But you don't run the team. You're not to de facto final say in the game plan, how you're going to do things. And you might not necessarily have all of the knowledge, which is why some of the head coaches, I think, that have been around longest and have been you know, truly successful. Belichick, I would say Pete Carroll's up there. You have... Sean Payton, right? You have these coaches that have this baseline of knowledge. And that baseline is 70%. Every other high school or quarterback, uh, sorry, high school or college coach that makes it to be a coordinator in the NFL or head coach is essentially starting around like 55 to 60%. They just don't have the years of experience. And because there's so much drama and pressure to win now, you're given a couple of years. You need to take everything, all the cats you ever had out of the bag. You need to dig to the bottom of your playbook. You need to come up with something that no one has ever seen before. And by the way, if you don't win a majority of your games in two years, like you're gone. And then what? You got to go back to the college or you get you to try and bounce around to another team and, and get a second shot or a third shot. It is very, very difficult for coaches to do that. It's even more difficult with how the game has changed for quarterbacks. Yes, the rules have changed in as much that it's now more of a passing-style league, but there are quarterbacks who don't necessarily do anything outside of spread or air raid. They don't do traditional drop-back passing. They're not comfortable doing two or three and four reads. It's not a knock on their intelligence. It is a knock on the scheme that they play in. That's why, you know, even though you see these pro days where these, these guys are running around and they throw 60-yard bombs like it's against air, you, it's great. It's a good throw. Awesome. You can, you can hit a big, big patch. I want to see situational football. That's why, you know, the, you know, having these three preseason games, it used to be four, now it's three. Um, rookies, you know, they're going to get played a lot more. But if you have a first-round quarterback, especially in the top five picks, like that person has to start. The pressure is so much on them that, like, if you don't set them up, for example, Trevor Lawrence probably going to go number one overall, Jacksonville Jaguars. Urban Meyer, head coach. Fantastic college coach. Absolutely fantastic. Has a lot of, I would say, off-field issues associated with his programs. And, and those are well-documented. You can look them up. Trevor Lawrence going to an Urban Meyer coach team is good for Trevor Lawrence. Trevor Lawrence going to, let's say, the, the Houston Texans for example, would not be good. You have a guy with a lot of raw talent, but no one in that system really to develop. Um, 
Jacksonville is a team that's young, that's rebuilding. It's it, They're trying to create a different image and different mold. And as such, Urban is going to have an expectation. It's going to be high, but it's not. I don't think it will necessarily be as high as other winning programs because you realize you have the talent that you have to scale back a little bit with, make the game simpler a little bit, and try and go out there and win as many games as you possibly can. Now, if Trevor Lawrence went to Denver, I don't necessarily think that would be a great place for him to go, necessarily. Um, so there's shades of this. So Donald now going to the Panthers. He's going to team up with a, a good offense coordinator and a good head coach. Don't let the stats like fool you. Yeah, wins are very, very important in the league. Remember how much hype has been around Cliff Kingsbury. Oh, he coached Patrick Mahomes. He's going to, he's going to do incredible things for, uh, for Kyler Murray. And he did do incredible things in that first season. But then when the league adjusts and everything gets a little more difficult, you have to figure out how to, I mean, I don't want to say it because it sounds punny, but you have to zig when, when the other folks zag. You got to have a really good system in place. Panthers have a good system. The Jets did not. Tim and I have talked about this many times uh, on the podcast now in our second season. So we know, just because we're fans of the game, we watched it long enough, that it, you, you've got you've to put someone there in a, in a good position. I think, for example, let's say uh, San Francisco, they've got quarterback. I don't know if you're going to call it controversy, but they owe Jimmy Garoppolo $25 million. It's not guaranteed, but they owe him $25 million if he's on the active roster. Even if they were to get uh, one of the, the, the top three quarterbacks, what do you do? Do you cut Jimmy Garoppolo and save yourself $25 million in cap space knowing he could go to another team and he could be you know, exactly like his, his old self and help other, one of your competitors out? Or do you say, let's get him to sit behind someone for a while? I mean, we always go back to Aaron Rodgers and how he sat behind Brett Favre for four years. Four years is just not going to happen in the NFL now. If you sit behind someone for four years, the thinking is you clearly don't have the drive or the desire or the ability to succeed at the next level. That's the thinking. It doesn't mean that it's right necessarily. It just means why would you sit in a professional league so long and making that amount of money if your game is not incrementally out there, if it's not challenging? And, and people could say, well, what happened with the Chiefs? You know, Patrick Mahomes sat behind uh, Alex Smith. 15 games came in, started two games at the end of the, of the season. And I think it's been well documented that we knew from seeing a couple of those games, what we're actually seeing now. Uh, it was a good precursor to it. Some guys cannot make that jump. Mitch Trubisky uh, doesn't seem to be able to make that jump right now. Um, Andy Dalton has been bouncing around from team to team. I think he got done super dirty by the Cincinnati Bengals, but here we are. He's now a bear. Mitch Trubisky is now a backup quarterback on the Buffalo Bills because there's no way you're not starting Josh Allen. Where do you get there? Do you just try and go and have the best one-two quarterback combo? Or are you trying to develop the player to improve their game and also be competitive at the same time? It's sort of like the real estate triangle. You get price, location, or amenities. You can't get all three. But if you're lucky, you can get two. But you really use it. You have to settle for one. That's kind of what we're getting to with these quarterbacks now. We're at a point where we're saying... I want the upside, the floor, or the cap space. That's it. I, I want to know that this guy can be a running quarterback. He can not be Lamar or Russell Wilson or Patrick Mahomes, but he can be close on a good day. Or I want the cap space. Tyrod Taylor coming in on a one-year deal. Mitch Trubisky, one-year deal. Andy Dalton, one-year deal. Or you have the floor. I think a good example of a team that knows a quarterback with the floor would be like the Dallas Cowboys. Dak Prescott is a great quarterback. Dak Prescott has struggled a little bit. Dak Prescott has had injury, which I, I think when you have an offensive line like the Dallas Cowboys did and then injuries happen, you know, you start moving things out. Like you, you got to change the scheme at some point. And I don't think they necessarily helped Dak in, in that respect. Uh, I think they probably just thought like, well, You've got a wide receiver. You have Ezekiel Elliott. You should just be able to make things happen. That's not really necessarily the case, right? But Dak's floor is so high that I believe that the Cowboys understand that they needed to pay him, which ultimately they did four years, $160 million. Dak has a high floor, and he also has upside. You don't get the contract spacing there. You don't really get the value there, right? Because you're having to pay this guy almost $40 million a year. Just the way the system works. It's going to be that way 
when Josh Allen gets an extension, when Lamar Jackson gets an extension, just because of what we saw the Patrick Mahomes contract and even the Deshaun Watson contract. Long story short, quarterback is a rolling of the dice. If you take someone super high and you have to start them right away and you don't have a support system for them in place, that really helps them get their game to a position where it's going to be beneficial for your team and beneficial for them to grow as players. I don't like necessarily people just taking quarterbacks number one, two, three overall. I, I just don't. I, I think that it's very tough because you put so much pressure on them to perform. And in two seasons, if they don't, they carry the bus label, their career is trashed, and it's very difficult for them to get out of that, that shadow that they didn't create necessarily because, like I said, with the, the quarterback triangle there. One last note for the NFL. And we'll wrap this episode up. Thanks to, to everyone for listening to Sam Jesus Take the Wheel Round 2 of Sassamander Podcast. We have to talk about Deshaun Watson. Now, it's something that Tim and I necessarily haven't talked about, um, not because we didn't want to, um, necessarily because it was such a fluid situation. There were so many things that were coming out with Deshaun Watson that I felt it probably wouldn't be best to hypothesize and, and give thoughts or opinions on something when we didn't know Maybe the names of the accusers. There wasn't a lawsuit necessarily that was uh, filed and that everyone could look at and sort of provide their own opinions on. It was, we're going to talk about this via Instagram. Or we're going to have Instagram posts. And understand that's the social media medium where folks want to disseminate news now. It's similar to Twitter. Like, I mean, if you want to break news on Twitter, I'm cool with it. And if you want to break news on Instagram, I'm kind of like, what the hell? But that's just me. Maybe I'm just old. I need to get off my stoop. But in the beginning... The timing. Oh, Watson, you know, wants out. He doesn't want to be a Houston Texan anymore, and a lawsuit pops up. We've all seen this storyline in movies. It's not really believable. And sexual assault and sexual harassment are very, very serious things. And, and we need to we need to believe victims. We need to trust the court system to to work their processes correctly. And that gets really shot to shit by lawyers who want to go on Instagram. That's just my personal opinion, right? So you have people that are going on Instagram and making these statements and posting them to Twitter and all these things. Um, one lawsuit comes out. You're like, okay. You don't want to say slow off season because that, that doesn't do any justice for, um, for the victims nor the accused. A second lawsuit comes out and you're thinking to yourself like, where there's smoke, there's fire. But like, it doesn't make sense. You know, Watson has been a guy that's been portrayed uh, in a very particular light. Uh, and this doesn't seem within his character at all. So you're thinking to yourself, like, and you start doing this math where like you kick down the accusation a couple levels because you're like, well, it came on Instagram. We haven't seen any actual official lawsuits yet. They're just saying they're going to bring things forward. There's this other news report that came out that said someone tried to get money in a long-term extortion. So Watson lawyers are saying this. And then the dread begins to set in because it doesn't leave the spotlight. And then you start to think, fuck, there's a good chance that maybe what's getting out there is a kernel of something that's much bigger. Uh, and then you, you think to yourself like, well, I, I sure hope that's not the case. Whether your feelings about Deshaun Watson or that he's a great player or a, a great young man or not, but you think you don't want them to be real because you don't want to know that, one or two or three people's lives could have been impacted. And then a fourth, a fifth, a sixth, a seventh, an eighth, a ninth, a tenth, a twelfth, all the way to 22 civil lawsuits now. Uh, and and two of the alleged victims came forward uh, today. And in a press conference, they had statements that they had prepared. They went on the record. They gave their names. And we're completely at the point now where the NFL, which had stayed out of this situation in the beginning, they said they they were actively following it, you know, which just just NFL speak for. Well, when the charges are filed, like then we'll go ahead and take a look. Even though underneath the CBA, they could suspend or put someone on the, the uh, commissioner's exempt list for just even allegations. And there have been sports, uh, you know, journalists who have said put him on the the commissioner's exempt list right now. Yeah, he's going to get paid, but put him on the exempt list. Show women out there that like we don't want these things to happen. That was a failure by the NFL. I think the NFL might have been thinking to themselves, where do we go here? A couple lawsuits. 
We have had players a couple lawsuits before. Is this something the players union is going to take to arbitration? Is this going to be something that's going to be, you know, taken as traditional offseason fodder, which it's crazy to me that such allegations could be such offseason fodder. But there have been instances where NFL players have been extorted. Uh, and, and there have been instances where NFL players have done heinous things. Ray Rice, for example, um, that have really shaken the public's trust in their faith in the foundation that the shield wants to grow the game and be inclusive versus the shield wants to protect those behind the shield, which is a very fair and valid criticism. And I don't think anyone at Park Place could necessarily take away from that. What I will say is this, an excess of 20 civil lawsuits does not tell me where there's smoke, there's fire. It tells me that there's something that we absolutely need to get to the bottom of. Um, if there was an allegation of fraud, doesn't matter. There's 21 other lawsuits that are bold and to the, to the point and deserve to have justice brought up, up for them. If there are 22 false lawsuits, then we need the court system to figure that out. We need to trust in our elected officials that we put on the judge and, and, and those circuits to do the work. It's very easy to get caught up in, in the siren songs that the, the lawyers are selling from both sides. I, I got to say, as a football fan, I'm not a, a, you know, a huge Houston Texans fan because they've been on the record for having a culture that doesn't value players, doesn't value them as individuals or as human beings. There was a lot of fallout with the Bill O'Brien thing. There was a lot of fallout with Jack Easterby. There was a lot of fallout with what, many of their franchise stars like being traded for pennies on the dollar. I don't think necessarily that Watson is a byproduct of that. If the lawsuits are true, Watson brought that into the equation. Him being in Houston didn't exacerbate that problem. It was probably there. Again, believe victims, trust the court system to work correctly. And I, I hope by the time we get to the end of this, whatever the lawsuits are, arbitration, whatever comes of this, I hope that every young man who is looking to be in the NFL one day realizes the gravity of situations like this. That if, as the allegation state, you are a powerful young man and you use that wealth and power to coerce, to negatively persuade people into doing things because of the solar system you created for yourself with power and influence, that anyone can be brought down. Uh, and, I, and I think it's very, very important for that to be said. So I'll leave it with this. Believe the victims. Trust the court system to work correctly. And if you get a chance and the documents become public, read them. See the, see the claims for themselves and, and take the lens of the NFL fan off. Take, take the name Deshaun Watson or, or Jane Doe 1, 2, or Jane Doe 22, because nothing would be filed like that if there wasn't something there. Th that's just my own personal opinion. I want to thank all of you for listening to Season 2, Episode 6 of Stats Maker Podcast. It's the one where Sam Jesus takes the wheel round two. Uh, shout out to New Realm Brewing. Thank you very much for the beer. Uh, well, I mean, thank you for producing it. I bought it at Wegmans. Shout out to Wegmans. Um, Tim and I are going to hopefully get another episode in this week. I'm actually going on vacation, a little well-deserved vacation. I'm going to go sit on a beach, socially distant, wear SPF 100, probably get fried. I'm going to wear my hemlock hat. Shout out to hemlock hats. And we will be back talking with you all soon. Thank you very much, everyone. Peace. Peace.